I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, if you ask an architecture what is infrastructure, uh, they'll typically say, well, it's something gray behind a chain-link fence. And that means an infrastructure usually is hidden, um, maybe for security reasons, maybe for aesthetic reasons. Civilization doesn't really want you to know about it or think about it or fuck with it. And except for bridges, it's basically hidden. That's what infra means. Infrared has more heat, infrared from the sun, than all of the light in the visual part of the spectrum. The infra part we don't see. So in a sense, infrastructure is the hidden history of civilization. Maybe it's the hidden future of civilization. Talk about that. Please welcome Jim Fallows. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you much, so much, Stuart. Thank you all for coming out this evening. It really is a privilege to, to be here. I had two thoughts on watching that wonderful film. One is, for any of you who have lived in China, as we have, it's just like watching TV in China. So I felt right, right back at home in terms of the, the, uh, the quick stimulation. The other is, it's why you're going to hear for the next few minutes, I'm going to be just talking to you as opposed to having a slide presentation because my snapshots would be uh, disappointing after, after that kind of film. But I'm going to try to explain why I think infrastructure actually is interesting. Let me give you some, some prelude for, for this. First, I do have to say, without taking too much time, what a honor and privilege it is for my wife, Deb, who's here in the front row, uh, visiting our son, Tom, who's also next to her, and to be here with so many of our friends. I can't actually see you through the lights right now, but beforehand I saw many friends here, and so we're, we're honored for your coming out. We also, it's more than sort of just, just a homecoming, more than a casual homecoming to, to, to be here. In a sense, this is our literal former home. Back in 2000 and 2001, Deb and I lived in the East Bay in Berkeley when she was working at Oxygen, if you remember them, on South Market Street, I think, uh, or South Main Street. I was uh, teaching at UC Berkeley with Katie Hafner and working for the Industry Standard, if you remember that uh, too, and we've been back and forth. Uh, but this is still our spiritual home in a lot of ways. I will confess in this crowd that I actually was, I grew up in Southern California, uh, so I know that is one of the great divides between North and South, but we've spent so much time here over the years, personally and journalistically, that I was really glad to have a chance to sort of touch base with, with all of you, and for a, a way that, that you've heard from a lot of other reporters visiting from the East Coast, but I wanted to explain in, in a little, little um, more, more depth. Over the last now 30 plus years, 35 years I've worked for The Atlantic, at least every year or so, I've come here for reporting trips and not for what you would normally read from your, your, uh, your East Coast journalists about, oh, gee whiz, they are so hip in California. They're not talking about the sequester, they're talking about the future, et cetera. What I have found so engrossing here in my home state of California and my adopted home area of the Bay Area is that everything that is interesting in the world 
you can see on display here. Yeah, of course, you can see the tech changes. In recent years, you've seen the manufacturing changes, educational innovation at the high end and at other ends you see here. The changes in governance that California has gone through over the last, last decade. Uh, I, I've ended up feeling in more than a cliched way uh, or rediscovering it after uh, taking it for granted when growing up here that California really is the America of America by which I mean not just the, the trends and fashion start here, but that everything that is challenging in our national life and promising in our national life, in terms of technological disruption, ethnic change, and all the rest, you can see here in a way that is both mo more challenging and in many ways more hopeful than in, uh, than in other parts of, of the, the country. So that's why I've been glad to come here. And now I'll explain why the last couple of months of correspondence between me and Stuart has been different from most other engagements of this sort that, that I've done. Most people in this audience, I bet, have four or five or six subjects on which they can roll off a standard pitch. And if you wanted a speech right now on the prospects for China or what's going to happen in the presidential race or things like that, I could give you that standard pitch. But Stuart, a number of months ago, said that he would like me to think about the subject of infrastructure as it intersected with the long now's perspective. I'd been writing a series on the California high-speed rail project, of which I was a proponent and am. I know that's not the universal view, but I was doing this series in the Atlantic. And so I said, yes, I'll try to think about this. And so what you're going to see is that unusual thing from a journalist, a guy who's just gotten here from the East Coast, an aged hack and all that, that is the product my actually trying to think about this and trying to say, <laughs> what do I know that, that, is, uh, that, that might shed some light for, for all of you? At The Atlantic, we have a particular goal that's kept us going now for our 158 years of existence. Uh, I know there's some people from unicorn companies here in the room. The Atlantic is a kind of publishing world unicorn, that we still exist. You know, we are, we've, we, so, uh, every day that's up for uh, you know, renegotiation, but we're, we're profitable now. Uh, we've, the, the thing we brag about, among many things, is that we, uh, we made only one presidential endorsement in our history that was for Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And so we decided we would retire undefeated uh, with, with, with that. And so, but, but what we try to do in our articles, since we have very specialized circumstances in which we write, we have a very long lead time. We're usually thinking a year ahead of time of what's going to be the, the subject for an article, trying to imagine what will be prominent enough to be interesting a year from now, but the New York Times won't have gotten to it, and, and uh, circumstances won't have uh, changed the entire premises. The goal we've had is to do arguments or analyses of subjects that become obvious once they're pointed out. That is, things that once, once the presentation is over, you've read the article, you've heard the pitch, you think, well, of course. But you didn't think, of course, before you'd heard this argument. And I could give you a long list of ways we've tried, tried to do that. But my goal in these next few minutes is to tell you something that I hope will seem obvious once I explain it about the role, how to think about infrastructure for people, citizens of the world, citizens of the United States, citizens of California, and members of the tech industry who are abundantly represented in this room. So that is the goal. Um, I believe in the school of oratory in which you tell people what you're going to tell them, 
you tell them, and you tell them what you told them. So I'm going to tell you, here's what's going to come. I have uh, both Deb and Tom, my family members, will groan when they hear. I have four points I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to give you. And he, here, here they are. This is what you're going to hear in the next few minutes. First, I'm going to tell you why infrastructure, gray as Stuart suggested it was, um, puzzling as it was when I thought about this a number of months ago and having the topic proposed, actually is the key to many of the most important, interesting, even sexy questions in human existence. So that's going to be the first argument I'm going to make, make for you, and why infrastructure answers one of the big questions that I journalistically have been dealing with through my, my career. Second, I'm going to try to explain why, by default, infrastructure of all sorts, important as I am suggesting it is, is underinvested in, underattended to, neglected. Almost every society in every stage of history has some kind of uh, defective or, or uh, lagging, lagging infrastructure. Third, I'm going to tell you what I have thought about as the ways in which Americans have avoided that default level of infrastructure when we have done it. What are the special circumstances in which, which that has occurred? And then finally, I'll try to say what this means that we do something about it, especially for you in the tech world. So that is the plan of action for the next while. To start with this first point of why infrastructure matters, is interesting, is an answer to some of humanity's uh, big, big questions, there are some questions that people, there are questions people mull about through as long as we've heard of people, and we'll, we'll mull through the entirety of the long now. Life and death, peace and war, love and marriage, all raising children, all that, that sort, sort of a thing. But there's another one which is just below those in prominence, but at least to me, has always been very interesting, which is the way people organize themselves and the ways in which that works and doesn't, that societies and countries and corporations and organizations <clears throat> that seem to work better and worse. During my lifetime in the United States, we've often thought about this in competitive ways. Are the Soviets better organized than we are? Are the Japanese? Are the Chinese now? Corporations have all their studies of culture. Uh, we have, in, when I used to study economics in graduate school, there was development economics of which societies were handling it one, one way or another. And even when, when it's not in that strictly competitive framework, there's a sense of, well, let's try to assess which things work better and, and which things uh, don't. As a, as a side point, one of the, during the years uh, Dev and I were living in China, one of the pleas I constantly made in, the, in articles in the Atlantic and radio broadcasts was for Americans to try to do that thing which is hardest of all for us to do, which is to take another country seriously without being afraid of it. Now, usually we take Russia, Japan, whatever, uh, the Islamic world seriously when we were afraid of it and the rest of the time to hell with them. With China, I think it's important to take it seriously without being afraid of it. That's the separate speech you can get on request uh, later on. The, we know that through history, there are all sorts of very worthy and august people who have wrestled with this question of societal and organizational health or dysfunction, and which things work better and which things work worse and why they fail. We have the many volumes of Gibbon and the many volumes of Arnold Toynbee and Max Weber and Spengler and Barrington Moore and other people we've all studied in college or graduate school, and I could go down, down the list. What is interesting to me is how the default level of explanation 
largely in America, but other places too, is when you see organizations or countries or societies or, or, or corporations doing better or worse, the default almost um, you know, irresistible explanation is to say it's a matter of the people. Uh, for example, the now leading candidate for the Republican nomination talking about the, the Mexicans sending the rapists and the criminals and some good people, etc. This is this is something that is distinctive at this moment in our politics, but has a very, very long tradition. I mentioned a good point of the Atlantic's history in 1860 when we endorsed Abraham Lincoln. A dark point was in 1909 through about 1925 when, under the editorship of a zealot editor, the Atlantic was a main tribune for saying, keep out the Slavs, keep out the Greeks, keep out the Italians, keep out the Poles, keep out the Jews. These people are not up to it. And again, it was these people. There were differences in, in, in racial uh, stock. I don't even need to get into America's original sin of slavery or the history of, 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 uh, of scientific racism. Just saying that it's worth recognizing as we go down this path, how powerful is the instinct even here in a multi-ethnic nation to think that people by their essence are one way or another and to sort of skip past organizational issues and look at the, the people uh, themselves. Here's a side note for later reference. Uh, one of the, I'm saying that this is one trait that is very strong in American history, the sort of default thought that whoever is the newest group of people is not up to the standards of the previous one. And that's been a constant for as long as people have been coming to this continent. The other uh, constant, which I mentioned, hoping you'll remember it about 20 minutes from now, is the, the tradition of Americans feeling that we're just about to go to hell. That since as long as there have been people on this continent, there have been people saying essentially what they say at the latest Republican debates, that things are just falling apart, uh, the government is terrible, everything is bad, we used to be good, and let's, let's have it be uh, good again. Uh, my friend Peter Hirschberg is here. I've recommended to him a book called The American Jeremiad by a scholar called Sack Van Berkowitz. You can guess uh, that his parents were students of lefty politics in the 1920s, called, about how starting from the 1630s, Americans were saying, yeah, it was great back there in 1620, but now just, it's, it's just that things, uh, you know, it's bad people uh, now. So I recognize from American history and world history this impulse to think that people in their essence are wrong. Women are not suitable to vote. Blacks are not suitable for citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. And through the decades, I've tried, I've actually been obsessed with the question of why, how America is meeting its challenges, how it compares to other civilizations. And I've tried to look at this explanation versus other hypotheses in a number of avenues I'll just tick off uh, briefly. I, I grew up in Southern California in the 1960s, so we had the golden age of America under, under Pat Brown. I then was in college in the late 60s when things seemed to be falling apart and actually were. I was in England for graduate school after that studying economics where I had the droll spectacle. This is, uh, I, I can't see you if you raise your hands, but who's been to, who studied economics here? I bet a lot of people are raising their hands. I've become a permanent skeptic of economic doctrine after being taught in this, in this uh, conference room in Oxford where it was like 41 degrees. Uh, and you could see your breath and the tutor had these horrible little fingerless mittens that he was uh, sort of an Ichabod Crane-like, or uh, his name was Nicholas Dimsdale, actually. Uh, he, he was telling me, and he was giving me all the principles of how economic theory taught you 
why nations would prosper. I thought, you know, this is what economic theory brings me. I, I will, I'll, I'll stick, I'll go to, to some other, other discipline. But, it, you know, over, over the years, Deb and I have lived in Texas during its booms and busts. We've lived in Japan during the 1980s, during its, its halcyon days. Um, I should mention I worked for Jimmy Carter as a speechwriter in the late 1970s when everything really was, was, uh, was dire. And, uh, and so I've been in these different uh, venues. I've been trying to say, how can we think about whether America can continue to revive itself you know, after these warnings from 1630 onwards? Whether other societies were going to make it or not? Would England ever get central heating? Would the Chinese make it? Would the Japanese make it? And what I have ended up thinking is that as I've seen a lot of different people in a lot of different societies around the world and lived spun a lot of, of our family life outside the United States, I become more and more impressed by the universal energy, creativity, ambition, good humor of actual people in most uh, countries you, you go to. You travel, a, one of the saving graces between the US and China is that people actually get along so well bet between the, the two countries. And so I think that I become more and more skeptical of the idea that the raw stock of people is the main differentiator in how organizations or societies or economies improve. I've become more and more interested in the systems through which these people, with the same human desires, the same creativity, the same ingenuity, the same hopes, the same trepidations, the same belief in their children and, and all, all their relatives, in which they're able to do more or less with that, that, um, that energy. And my attention has been drawn to all of the systems that either empower them to do those things or frustrate them in some way. I'm talking about uh, tangible elements of these systems, whether as a country has, has drinking water, whether it has paved roads, whether in the old days it had aqueducts, whether now it has broadband access, whether it has airports, whether it has all these other physical manifestations of the tools that allow people to do their work, realize their ambitions, do more than they could if they were stuck in a little, um, a little village. This is the time to confess that Deb and I spent our honeymoon in little villages in Ghana. Uh, and you may wonder why we're still married these many decades later. The reason is we were there on our honeymoon when Richard Nixon took the US off the gold standard and the Ghanaians would not accept our dollars for the next couple of months. So we couldn't buy our way out of the country. So I was impressed back then. We, so Deb couldn't leave me because we couldn't, uh, couldn't change the dollars. We, we got through the, the village life in Ghana. And again, it impressed me of people who are really talented but were constrained by the sort of physical infrastructure they had there. I mean also organizational things and, and rule setting things, whether there are patents and public health systems and rules for cooperation and universities and public norms, whether there are things like expectations of how you will drive your car. Who has driven a car in China? Uh, this is something that, that I actually never drove one, but I, I was in a lot of them, and it's a, a serious public health issue for China that people don't know how to drive cars. It's a nation of first-generation drivers. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's one of many, many of these cultural things. Um, accounting uh, systems, you know, there's famous books about how the, the invention of double entry accounting was part of the modern age. So that's another one of these systems. And then there are cultural systems that either encourage or impede people. What I used to call in an article I wrote about the Philippines, the radius of trust. 
the broader the radius of trust is, the less frictional cost there is of making sure people aren't cheating you or you're about to be robbed. Uh, racial barriers, um, uh, gender barriers, tribal barriers, all these other things. These things collectively, the hard properties through which a society operates its roads and its airports and the telephone and its public health systems and all the rest, the organizational understandings by which they can, can uh, conduct their business and the cultural ideas of how people can aspire, what their, their limits are, what can, they can dream to. I call these, all th these things all, wait for it, infrastructure. Uh, because infrastructure in the sense that these are the systems visible and invisible, evolved over time, and ones that try to uh, cope, uh, catch up with modernity, that allow people to use their talents or not. And that's why I think the saga of the last 60 or 70 years in development around the world has, has been so dramatic because infrastructure of various kinds have, have caught up, has caught up. So this first point I'm telling you is that through my life of travel as a reporter and skeptic of economic theory and guy fleeing the cold in England and then going to, to we actually were in Ghana because we were so cold in England, that's why we, we went there for our honeymoon, and trying to explore all these different societies going up and down, I've been impressed by the universality of, of people's talents and efforts and the huge differential made by these systems I think of collectively as infrastructure. This is obvious, of course, but now I've pointed it out to you. So this is obvious now that I've pointed out. Let's move to, move to point two. Why is it, this is going to be my assertion, that almost every society in different ways neglects and underinvests in these various kinds of infrastructure that can allow its people to reach their maximum and to do the, attend to the long-term things and the short-term uh, needs that, that, that they, they have. Um, I will stipulate that, you know, many, as many of you know, there's lots of different familiar names for what I'm talking about. We're talking about positive externalities, and we're talking about the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism and network effects and cognitive surpluses and Confucianism and all, all the rest. And there are variations in those things, but I'm asking you for now to think of this as one general system, hardware and software, of how people organize themselves collectively to make the most of, of their of their, their ambitions. And it strikes me, as you look at these different kinds of infrastructure, you observe these things about them. One is that they are both publicly and privately created. The government builds roads, but the government didn't build the search engine industry. The government has so the infrastructure, the literal infrastructure for the search engine industry, but you have things that, that are being built by uh, the state, building by philanthropists, being built by, uh, by businesses, et cetera. So there's a variety of ways in which these things come in, into being. However, they have, despite those differences in, in origin, there are three things that are true in my view of anything I'm going to call infrastructure. One of them is that the individual benefits are not captured by the person who creates them. That's the good part of it. You're creating a public benefit, but it means the person doing this, the organization doing this, is in some way benefiting others and therefore might be, te be tempted to underinvest in it. A second uh, tendency here is that the benefits are not fully foreseeable. I don't have to tell anybody here about how the, the unintended consequences, uh, mainly good, sometimes bad, of technological innovation, even in the last 20 or 25 years, that almost every stage 
of technical breakthroughs there, and infrastructure changes, there have been things that nobody, uh, nobody expected. The way that the car changed the settlement pattern uh, in the United States and many, many other effects. The third thing that is true of all of these, in my view, is that their payoff is it exceeds the reasonable time horizon of the person creating these things. It may be decades long, it may be centuries long, but it's something that a purely rational investor would not do. So we have things whose individual benefits can't be captured by their creators, whose benefits aren't fully foreseeable, and that whose payoff is in, in, in the long term. And it's also one other extra uh, benefit here is that often these infrastructure investments, not always, but often, they disrupt somebody in the here and now. And the result of these things, I think, is that in different societies, in different ways, you have less attention to the software and the hardware that allows people to flourish, as I'm, I'm discussing, than there might, um, ideally, might ideally be. Um, and so I, I think that that's, um, if we look around the world, I think in each country you can imagine, you can see the ways in which this distortion and underinvestment affects it. I'll just mention briefly China once more. We think of China as king of infrastructure. You go to China and there's, there were, when I wrote my book China Airborne, there were at that time 100 new airports being built in China. At any given time, there's, there's zero new airports being built in the United States. You know, they don't have that many, but it's, it's been the main way they've tried to propel the economy. During the year and a half we lived in Shanghai, there were like four entire new subway lines, not stations, but lines that opened during that time, and, and similarly in Beijing. But in China, they have been optimized for the hard infrastructure, but I argue that in almost all these other soft ways, all the cultural and organizational things, they are hitting the limit of their, their soft infrastructure now. One of the arguments in, in my book was, was in fact that China in the past 30 years has been a miracle of going from peasantry to sort of Dickensian industrialization. And the question is whether the next 30 years will be going from Dickens to, to having Siemens and GE and Mitsubishi and all these other advanced uh, companies or, or not, just being a bigger version of what it is. And that's because of the organizations, the universities, the, the, uh, the, the in increasing um, uh, censorship. Um, I would argue that in Japan, the soft cultural barrier is, is, is the tribal racial consciousness there. Um, as you know, Japan's population is now falling at a dramatic rate. There are projections that within 50 years, certainly within the long now's horizon, its population could have fallen almost by half. And the reason is that immigration, which has been so important to the United States, is something that is very, very hard for Japan to absorb. That's their kind of infrastructure that is difficult uh, for, for, for them. We can go through Europe and Latin America and, uh, and uh, the rest of the world. I'll say that let's talk about the United States now, of the ways in which we invest and don't in, in infrastructure. We have, have had various times where there have been social barriers across the range. Immigration has always been disruptive through our history, but usually we found ways to, uh, to accept it, except during the 1920s and 1930s. Um, the, the cycle we've had in the last, uh, say, 30 or 40 years has been a financial starvation of our infrastructure, where the East Coast has physical infrastructure built in the mid-1800s. The Midwest has physical infrastructure from the late 1800s. California has it from sort of the early part and mid part of the previous century, and it's all getting older, and the evolution or devolution of our politics means it's been very hard for us, for us to address. But it's 
worth recognizing that through our history, even here, even in the country that has had the big continental ambitions, that has uh, kept absorbing people from the rest of the world, that has prided itself on continuing to open new opportunity, most dramatic infrastructure projects have gotten through only by a miracle. And I'm talking about the, the I'll give you some examples. The Louisiana Purchase, now, you know, like the biggest no-brainer in American history, was very controversial for Thomas Jefferson. There were impeachment threats and various threats to him for the Louisiana Purchase. The Erie Canal, similarly, the Gadsden Purchase, the Alaska Purchase, Seward's Folly, the Panama Canal, parts of the railroad system, the land-grant colleges, the GI Bill, uh, even the Atlantic. It, the Atlantic, during and after World War II, wrote a lot of very good stuff but it was home, as were many other publications, to articles saying the GI Bill was going to turn our institutions into hobo jungles because these people who were not really suitable for higher education were going to be uh, tro trooping in. Uh, interstate freeways and, and all, all the rest. And you can, if we are all, I hope to be here 50 years ago, 50 years from now. I don't expect to be here 50 years from now, but when my son Tom come, comes here 50 years from now, you can judge whether the current controversy over the high-speed rail system is an example that we look back on as we do the Golden Gate, which was controversial, uh, or, or, or whether it's seen as one of the, the small category of, of uh, infrastructure projects which turned out poorly. A codicil here. I had a long, one of my beats on the Atlantic has been military policy. I wrote a, a book about 30 years ago called National Defense, and I sort of reprised that early this year with a long article called The Tragedy of the American Military, talking about our predicament as a chicken hawk nation in which we're eternally at war, but only a tiny little sliver of the population is actually exposed to war. The, the combined American population that served in either Iraq or Afghanistan or those theaters in the past 12 years is less than 1% of the entire population. And so you have this separation, and it, it is, it's had, um, and I think that means that many military projects, the default view of them is skepticism. You know, the F-35, the F-22, one is right to be skeptical of those. The default view of big civilian infrastructure projects of the hardware type should be embrace and optimism because the historical record is that we over-imagine their short-term disruption, the NIMBY phenomena now, the things that aren't gonna work, and we don't imagine the things that will happen when the Golden Gate Bridge is built, when the GI Bill revolutionizes higher education, and, and all, all the rest. Now, I will, and I'll just say, so you don't ask me why I didn't mention it, of course, for the world as a whole, the most dramatically underinvested part of the whole infrastructure uh, issue is, of course, our climate emergency, where uh, for, for reasons that are specific to each country but universal around the world, it's been not in anyone's interest to deal with this, which I think is the, has to be the next focus of U.S. and, and international politics. I'm saying, wrapping up this second point, that every country has a hard time fulfilling its entire range of infrastructure success because this is always disruptive. It's disruptive in cost, it's disruptive ethnically, as we're seeing in Japan and even in the US. It's disruptive organizationally, as we see in China and to people who hold incumbent power. I think as you survey that entire landscape, I would argue that still the US, despite our financial underinvestment in infrastructure and the increasing polarization economically of our population still is better positioned 
infrastructure-wise in the broadest sense than any other country. I can give you the full version of that rationale later on, but I'll simply say the ability to attract an outsized share of the world's talent and have them do their work here is something that no, no other country that is as open has the scale we have, no other country that has our scale is as open. This is a unique advantage, and there is still a resilient power to th this country. But to wrap up the second point, every country has reasons particular to it and also ones that extend uh, around the world for not doing as much as it should or could to create the systems that its people need to do their work in the long run. Point three, there are ways in which the US in particular <clears throat> has found ways around this challenge over its history. There's a reason we do have the Louisiana Purchase and the national parks and railroads and airports and all these other things. You know, there are some things we don't have, but those are things we, we achieved. And as, I, as I've thought about it, excuse me for a second. It strikes me that in the United States, there are three reasons why we're able to overcome the stasis and do the things we have done. It's worth thinking about these for, for future reference and future possibilities. And those three reasons are emergency, stealth, and a story. Emergency, I think, is, is, is obvious, that when there are you know, the... Um, World War II, you know, the, the, the New Deal didn't end the Depression, as we know. It was the mobilization of World War II that suddenly got the, the demand kicked up. There are many times through American history where you can see log jams of disagreement and impacted interest being broken by some emergency that then shifted, shifted us on to a different kind of, of business from business as usual. The biggest mistake made by the United States in the two years after the 9-11 attacks was to decide to invade Iraq. The greatest missed opportunity was not to use that year's worth of national unity, national political mobilization to do something more than we did. That is to say anything. You know, with that, 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 <laughs> that time of when we could have done so much uh, that would be, that would address the nation's long-term long problems. But emergencies have a, they are the, almost the only thing that can get political paralysis out of its paralyzed situation. And it may well be that here in California, the drought situation could be that. Uh, this is, we don't know how long the drought will go on. We know that if it goes on much longer, just the way of doing business here can't be sustained. And so what this emergency, it's not an enemy attack, but it's a genuine emergency, what that does to California's ability to think about its, its housing patterns, its technology, its resource use, and all the rest, it's, it's possible that this will be a valuable um, emergency for California and one of national and international significance. But that's one of the circumstances in which the U.S. can actually do something, a sense of emergency. A second way in which the U.S. has been able to actually uh, leap, leap forward is stealth, subterfuge, deceit, by which I mean the military budget. Uh, this is, there's a, a wonderful book some of you may have read called A Country Made by War by Jeffrey Parrott, which clearly makes the case that I've tried to make uh, over the years too, that America distrusts and hates and punishes anybody who uses the term industrial policy, but the way we've actually done it is through the military. 
And that's not just a post-World War II phenomenon, it's back from the, from the Revolutionary War era, where the small machining industry was, was uh, fueled by having contracts for the, the muskets and rifles for the, uh, the early Continental Army. And through that, you find a lot of the big infrastructure projects, the education projects, other things that we look back on as having built the nation, having had a military rationale, because that's something that allows you to say, well, this isn't just big government, this is, this is national defense. How many people here study languages on the National Defense Education Act? Uh, the languages I studied in high school, junior high and high school were Latin and French. Uh, the, the joke was Latin was when we invaded Latin America. I would be all, all, all set. Uh, it's, you know, th th this was how money could be sluiced there, and it is still the case that uh, innovations in health from, from battlefield medicine, the Veterans Administration, the ways it's tried to do treatments, all sorts of other things. The military has been the guise for investments we are not allowed to make other ways. We know that uh, this, the, the Navy Department in the last six or seven years has been one of the leading clean energy departments of the, the entire government along with, with DOE because as they tried to shift to, uh, to greener, greener fuels. There is, of course, a codicil to this. It's not purely the military. Uh, it is also the sort of the biotech and, and uh, medical establishment, the NIH, the hospital establishment. That's been the other way we've done it. So it's better than, it would be better to have explicit actual decisions about how we want to do these things, of doing uh, the, the groundwork for the internet, not just through DARPA or through the Defense Department, but it's better than nothing, because nothing seems to be our main alternative for having these investments in the national, national interest. And the third way in which we've been able to get off the dime and do something big and break the normal bias against infrastructure investment or changing our rules is somebody who has had a story that this was something that that could make people look past their own immediate financial interests their own one year five year time horizon their own community and think about what would be good for the nation in the longer run these have had a variety of, you know, in, in retrospect, some of these look better than others. Manifest Destiny was one of the stories that propelled the entire uh, movement of the white settlers across the continent, moving the Native Americans away, but also bringing them under United States of America control. That was a story. It's a story that was better and worse, but it was a story that, that got things um, going. During my childhood, the space race, you know, John Kennedy he was not afraid at all to use the military threat, but he was saying we're going to land a man on the moon uh, by the end of this decade, and, and the United States did. There was a, a kind of glory to that. So in the 1920s, there was a continental excitement. Here in California, I would argue that the Governors Brown, original Governor Brown, current Governor Brown, original version, current Governor <laughs> Brown, current version, have, have found ways to use these stories too. The Pat Brown of my childhood was building universities and building highways and opening parks and having access to beaches and building the new things for a new state. And that was an idea that uh, might have made, made had a particular appeal for the Californians of the post-World War II generation, which is when my parents came here from their origin in Pennsylvania, and so many other millions did too. That was a story that Pat Brown told during his original incarnation, the current Governor Brown had a story more of, that was like the Carter story I was telling uh, in, in the White House, of limits were closing in, trying to do more with less, et cetera, and that may have been appropriate at that time. The current 
Governor Brown has given the current, current Governor Brown, current edition, has had a story of the long now of this state, of what it's meant through history, what it means to its people, what it can mean in the future, what its natural resources mean, how to cope with the drought, about fiscal, fiscal prudence. And I think that from his uh, fiscal plans to, to the, the, the railroad, the high-speed rail, there's a sense of you may disagree with him on a million details, you may not like taxes or whatever else, but he has a story he's telling and he's been able to sort of move things uh, so far in, in the state. So to this, this next point, I'm saying that, so follow along so far, I've said that infrastructure of all sorts is what allows societies to thrive. Most societies can't sustain as much of it as they should, and the U.S. has overcome this bias mainly through emergency or through the military budget or through stories that are leaders have arisen to tell us from time to time. So this brings me to the last point I'm going to make, where I'm going to tell you, I think there is actually an American story to tell now that is positive and could make people think in your industry, around the country, in different branches of, of life, that there is a better time ahead for this country if we invest in it if we don't just sort of hunker down and protect what, we, what is ours and make sure nobody, uh, nobody gets, gets a, a share of it. And here, here's the, the prelude. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Deb and I have been doing for the last two years. While we were living in China, the narrative we heard about the United States was, again, as in 1630, things were going straight to hell. That, uh, that, of course, we had the financial crash, which had originated in the United States, as everybody in China mentioned. Here... Um, Deb will cringe as I mention my most embarrassing admission. I'm, I will say it here in public. In China, everybody was sure that I actually was George W. Bush. <laughs> and so, so I got to hear this from people directly. Now, why are you starting all these wars? That crazy Cheney, you know, can't you keep him under control, et cetera? So uh, we got to hear, you know, it was not just the people complaining to me as, as the 43rd president, but it was... It was a larger sense the United States once again was on the ash heap of history, on a downward descent, and that everything was, was sort of falling apart and that we were polarizing as we certainly are, are economically. And so when we returned from China, we started a project about two years ago of in our little propeller plane, our little four-seat, single-engine, parachute-equipped Cirrus SR-22, going from one smaller American city to another and seeing how they were coping with economic dislocation, with natural disaster, with drought, with you name the, the factory closing, you name the hardship. We're going to see how these, these cities in Mississippi and in Vermont and in South Carolina and in South Dakota and in Fresno and in San Bernardino were coping with, with all of their of, their, of, of their, their travails, and we've been for now in hundreds of blog posts, a number of, of, uh, of, uh, of broadcasts with Marketplace Radio, they've come out on, on the terrain with us, and a big story I'm going to do in the Atlantic, uh, will come out at the beginning of next year, we've tried to say that if you didn't know that America was going to hell, you actually would think it was doing okay. You would see lots of places where people were finding ways to cope with their challenges and circumstances. And that if the narrative you'd heard is that it was a good time for America, then the things you were seeing in Mississippi and, and in, in Michigan and these other places actually would say, yes, this is another time of, of, of creativity for the United States. Let me give you just a couple of details about this because they sort of, they support 
the story I think it's our time to tell that involves infrastructure in this, this new age. Um, one of the things that is most striking across this whole range of cities we've been to in every part of the country, and we're still doing more traveling, is that the politics that is so poisonous at the national level just never comes up. And, and the, my favorite example for this is the paired towns of Burlington, Vermont, and Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville, South Carolina, a way right-wing town. Jim DeMint was its congressman. Trey Gowdy is now. Bob Jones University is there. Romney carried it by 30 points. Burlington is the home of Bernie Sanders. Its two parties are the Democrats and the Socialists. Obama won by 30 points. If you didn't know they were opposites, you would think they're the same place. They work the same way. You have city managers working with businesses, working with the universities, working with the community colleges. That is one thing that is striking, that we think that America, and, and it is the national level, at a not unprecedentedly bad time, because there was the Civil War, but at a pretty bad time <laughs> of, of national politics. At the local level, it's the kind of America you thought we were supposed to have, of people being practical-minded and compromising and thinking, yes, let's look to the long term. We've also been struck, even in places that show up in the paper only as stories about misery in the heartland, of people who are presented in the national press usually as the objects of this or that huge national trend, not feeling like, like objects at all, feeling as if their community, their neighborhood, their school, their company was doing something to make things uh, uh, better. And yes, America has every single problem we are all familiar with, and I've written about as many of them as anyone here has, has too, but there also is a sense of people coping with that in their, their, their towns. Time and again we'd hear from people across the country, yeah, this is really a bad time for America, but things look pretty good here in Allentown, or things look pretty good here in Columbus, Mississippi, or things look pretty good here in Fresno. I'll just I'll say more about Fresno in a moment. I know that's sort of the shock value for a, a San Francisco audience. And the Fresno people actually revel in that. They revel in the idea. A, a really interesting thing is the empowering force of being looked down on. That in one of our favorite people we met is a guy named Joe Max Higgins, who is a son of an Arkansas sheriff. He's um, a huge, he's not very tall, but he is huge, a burly guy who is the economic development genius for uh, the Golden Triangle of Mississippi. And he said when they, they attracted a factory where Airbus makes its helicopters in Mississippi, he said, in Mississippi, we're making shit that flies in Mississippi. And we all stood up a little taller because we knew we were doing these things. They're, the people who know they are looked down on in Mississippi, in West Virginia, in Fresno, this is a sense that it gives them a kind of motivation to, uh, to show that they, they can do um, more. We've seen a fascinating opportunity equilibrium. And I'll mention this with great caution here in San Francisco because you're sort of ground zero of what I'm saying there's an alternative to. So the, the ground zero phenomenon that you all represent, and probably just people in this room are the, the, uh, the, the crown princes and princesses of, is the idea that if you really are running things in the country, you're in Boston for academics, New York for finance, DC for despair, Seattle, <laughs> Seattle for Amazon, the Bay Area for everything you do here, Los Angeles for the industry. And there are other places, Chicago, Dallas, et cetera. But all that stuff in the middle, that's sort of padding between the, the, the coasts. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating that even as that is happening, and you know and you see it in all the, the trends here in, in San Francisco, a reverse talent migration is also happening 
largely because of real estate prices. People think in Fresno, for one-tenth the cost any place in San Francisco, I can start an art studio. I can do a startup, whatever. They're saying that in Mississippi. They're saying it in Duluth, Minnesota. They're saying it all over the place and in Green, Greensville, South Carolina. So you've, there is the migration to the coast, but there's more of a reverse migration than you would think. Usually people have to have some reason to think, yes, I'm from this place. It has some, some connection to me, et cetera. There is a, an interesting... We all know or hear or read in the paper that public schools are yet another source of despair about America on its way to the ash heap. And yet if you actually go to a lot of these places, this vital experimentation in technical education and community colleges and finding ways to connect people who are not going to be doctors or venture capitalists with higher paying jobs than they would get at Walmart. And, and so they could, be, uh, they could be welders, they can be robotic repairmen. I can give you, Deb has written a number of dispatches uh, about this. We've seen a couple of other markers, which I, uh, I offer to you as you travel around the country, if you do, uh, to, <clears throat> to see whether places are on the way up or not. First is whether people are living downtown again. You know, even in Mississippi, even in South Dakota, that's been the marker of a place that's, that's coming back. Um, a, a second is whether the community college is revered and is really involved with the business. And the third is, of course, whether there is a brew pub. No kidding. That, that is a marker for whether cities are on, on, on the way up. And we've been, so we've been, you know, I, I won't tell you any more about these cities right now, but what I'll say is we have the sense from people we've become allies with. Peter Hirschberger is here as one of them, the Markle Foundation is one, the Kaufman Foundation, people in the maker movement of sensing that there is something happening now that is underappreciated, that is under-registered in the national media, which are all about paralysis, nothing happens, email scandal, whatever. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that there's no room in the press for a sense that Lots of the answers are being hatched sort of one by one, city by city, not in a way that solves any of the major problems we have yet, but that it matters and is different from what people are, are thinking. And the story that we think we, we, um, we Americans could tell is that if we have the premise that everything that's wrong right now is a different, bigger more garish version of what was wrong during the first gilded, gilded Age, where almost everything we complain about now happened then. Corrupt judiciary, corrupt politics, disruption through immigration, disruption through technology, disruption through globalization, all these things, they were, of course, were true in the America of the 1880s through 1910s or so. The response to that partly involved national leaders who told a different story, including, crucially, Teddy Roosevelt in a different way, Woodrow Wilson and the union movement and, and all the other movements that, that happened then. But there was, before that, across the country, this myriad of cities and states and regions saying, we have a way to deal with this new form of education with a high school, with this new form of finding out ways to have people work, with this new form of suffrage, of course, with women getting to vote then, with this new form of, of ethnic inclusion. And this is something that, that I think the argument I'm going to make in my Atlantic article is the story for this next stage of America's attending to its infrastructure in the broadest sense is a hopeful one that in fact, people across the country are using their 
wits, their ingenuity, the opportunities the local infrastructure gives them to find solutions in their local area, in Mississippi, in South Dakota, in, in, uh, in Vermont, in Maine, in, in other, other places, and they don't all know they're doing the same thing. And there's a virtue in saying there actually is something happening that can be assisted if it can be more powerful if people know it's an actual thing and if people with at the commanding heights of technology, like all of you, also can see this and find ways to use your products, your skills, and all the rest to, to do it, including one other Gilded Age point. One of the, the good sides of the first Gilded Age, of course, was that the new wealth of that era endowed universities and museums and art galleries and all these other and symphonies and every, everything else. And so one hopes that the wealth of this era will be quickly put to, uh, to use in, in, in that way. There are more things I could tell you, but I'm, I'm going to just bring this to a close. You know, it's long, it's long now, but not that long, not limitlessly <laughs> uh, long. So by, by saying again, what's become obvious to me once I spent time thinking about it is, is this chain of logic I've tried to, to lay out. That over the millennia and around the world, people with the same amount of raw, same thing they want to do, the same, same talents, the same energies, the same passions. What's made it possible for them to do those things or not is the systems they involve, both phys they evolve with phys physical systems, cultural ones, and it's worth paying attention to that infrastructure as the structural basis for continued human ability to better the condition of all of us and address our problems, like notably environmental sustainability. Uh, second, that there are reasons why we all neglect these things. The United States strangely neglects them less than other places have because we have the soft infrastructure in better shape than other places, but we're neglecting our hard infrastructure. We have found ways to trick ourselves into doing the right thing here in the United States by emergencies or by the military-industrial com uh, complex or by a story, which leads me to the last point, which is there is a story we could tell. The story is an America that is not just in its final throes, but it's going through the latest version of its reinvention in which all the dire things that are wrong now can be, if not solved, at least addressed and buffered by individual talent across the country, but also by the exceptional tools that the tech industry is creating in mapping and communications and in lowering barriers to, to opportunity and all the, all the rest. So, as I have thought about the long now of infrastructure, I, I today, unlike six months ago, I actually care about infrastructure. I think it's important, and I think the way we can most uh, effectively advance the next stage of America's broadest infrastructure ambitions is by recognizing there's a different story we can tell, which includes the bad parts, but also, as most of our political discussion does not, includes the promising things that are beginning to. So with that, I say thank you for coming, and I'll look forward to uh, discussion. That was great. I think you've got a book there. <laughs> First an article. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, and I gather tomorrow you're going to Albuquerque to talk to an assembly of mayors. What are you going to talk to those guys about? Yes, I'm going to. So there's a big gathering of mayors in Albuquerque tomorrow, which is um, they're convening 
on these issues. I'm going to give them a talk about what we've seen around, around the country, and many of them we've, we've met. A side point is it's common knowledge that being mayor is, is a good job. It really can be a great job, that, that, uh, that, that if, you, if you want to get something done in politics, being mayor in a strong mayor system, you, you can't do better than that. Mm -hmm. uh, being, being president, you think, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. and, and cities, I notice, uh, take climate. You mentioned climate as a sort of version of I think there's hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, which is a great delineation, and probably natural infrastructure, which maybe a stable climate is. And you know, the C40, the cities from around the world who've been working on that seem to be more effective than nations. Is this sort of indicative that cities take infrastructure more yes, seriously that, that, than nations? Yes, that's a good point. And they can, they can more easily do things in the paralyzed politics of today's Western uh, nations. You know, China has a different kind of paralysis. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, but you know, that, that, that uh, the U.S. has very hard time, as Obama is showing, doing things nationally, but California can do things and cities can do things too. They can do something. A question from Sanjay Wiggle says, the U.S. is underinvesting in hard and soft infrastructure because of an ideology of privatization of everything, of everyone for himself, privatization in terms of not government and privatization in terms of, you know, oneself. Uh, is there a way around that or is that the situation? I'll, I'll give you my actual... Give you my actual view. Everything I've said before is my actual view, but this is why I preface it that way because this is a little more discouraging than what I was saying before. <laughs> I, I think we're we're in a we're in a cycle of national politics. We simply have to wait out, and I think we're we're seeing the fruit of Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, where the Republicans thought they could make themselves the party of the White South, and through Nixon and Reagan, it was their ticket to the presidency. And now the question is when will the Republicans want to win the presidency again? Because they're going to have to change to win. You can't win the presidency just on white Southern votes. There I was told in Britain, where we have sort of sensible conservatives these days, that the way conservatives get better is they lose three times. Uh, yes, and I think it may be more than that because... You know, so we, we, we've had you know, the, the two Obama races and, and anything could happen next time, but you'd have to bet on the Democrats just on... on on ethnic and demographic reasons, but the reason I said they care about winning the presidency is they still hold the House and the Senate, and most individual Republican legislators are safe in their districts. So they have no interest in, in appealing to Latinos or in appealing to uh, climate believers, as I guess I have to put it that way. Well, no wonder cities are doing stuff. If they aren't getting it from anywhere else, they have to, it sounds like. So, so Sorry, I didn't hear the first part. No wonder cities are doing so much stuff because they can't count on the yes. states uh, or the, certainly the feds to do what needs to be done. And, and that certainly came up lots of places. And just to, to make sure I'm not a federal government nihilist, so many places <laughs> we've seen... No, not much. Uh, where where, where you know, so much of the public infrastructure was built in the ninth, by the WPA. Right. And... An effective national government is good, but we're not going to have one for a while, and that's just the reality. Okay, so we're going various levels here. Damon raises the question of global infrastructure. Will it come from governments, from the private sector? How do you incentivize global infrastructure? Now, we just got this big trade agreement in the Pacific. I guess that's a version of soft infrastructure. Uh, there is more addressing of climate that's sort of a version of a global taking on that issue. But is global infrastructure something that's part of your... So lots of communication and transportation infrastructure is being built like this, you know, by mm -hmm. people in this room, of whether it's um, satellite uh, networks or, or whatever. So, so that is going along a pace. It's where 
and that's where the interests of the various nations more or less align and align with those of the companies too, except when it comes to China and information uh, freedom issues, which is a whole separate theme. So I guess the question is where the interests of the nations differ. Can private groups um, deal with that? And I think they can't. And that's why on the bright side, it's impressive to me that China and the United States dif differ on 10 clear things any of us can name here. There probably are 50, 500 other things that are actually working together pretty, pretty closely, including on, on uh, climate issues. Question from uh, Steve Upstill. Uh, you've come out for high-speed rail. You've probably heard of Elon Musk Hyperloop. Uh, should we up the ante? Uh, who in this room knows enough about the Hyperloop to give me a convincing answer to that? Is Elon Musk here? <laughs> so, so the Hyperloop seems to me like it sounds great, but so does my personal jetpack sound great. And so, I'll, and so, so if it if it's plausible, sure. My my un my non-expert impression is it still is some ways away. And the the perfect system is the enemy of doing something now. Ah, okay. So we're going to do this funky high-speed rail. Okay, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> so if there's somebody who has the hyperloop wants to be you know really really straight and uh, yeah. um, Paul Leo asks a couple of questions and these are the longest most sort of discursive essay like questions I've gotten in a while. <laughs> I, I gave it a long a while speech. Yeah, well that's <laughs> it is good. It's long now. People are you know going deep here. Um, everybody goes to China that I know, Garrett Gruner and various of you. They'd come back and go, oh my God, can these guys do infrastructure? And you know, you land at the airport and you get this thing, and you go into town and Shanghai blows your mind, and then these freeways are going everywhere, and they build the ghost cities, but then they populate them. And we can't build squat, they're building 100 airports, we're building zero. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, pathetic us that comes out of that storytelling. Uh, those are the people who've spent too much time in downtown Beijing or downtown Shanghai. I see. And okay, whenever I read a, a a newspaper column, and I have several specific people in mind saying, mm -hmm. oh, Beijing is just like New York. And I say, you know, go another half mile, and it's just like, uh, you know, just like um, Guatemala or something, or, or just... <laughs> Are they not doing rural infrastructure? Yes. So let me give you my China, my friendly China bear 30-second thoughtlet, which is I really, I like being in China Deb and I, every day when we were living there over the years, we would say it's always more interesting than it is horrible. And it was, it was plenty horrible, but it was always more interesting. We have lots of genuine friends there, and I think people get along. But China has so many problems. And mm -hmm. the look of these airports and the look of the high-speed rail are so misleading about its overall mm -hmm. connection. I think the maglev in Shanghai actually, who's taken the maglev in Shanghai? You'll notice it doesn't actually connect with the subway system. So we have our problems, but even the maglev there does too. Um, Kevin Kelly asks, what it's, so it's well documented that infrastructure investment pays off a little more slowly than uh, the first money. So what is wrong or what can be corrected about the investment frame of thinking to acknowledge that you're going to be really glad in 40 years' time, even though you're really unhappy in the first five years <laughs> about this thing. How do you do that? Long-term investment. What do you? So from the national perspective, I think you cannot do that in open debate. 
We've reached that point in our national politics. You <gasps> simply can't do anything. Is this election term. cycle or it, it, it's media more, cycle? What's the problem? It, it, it's the media is the media are part of it, but it's. Uh, I think they're for the last at least of the Obama period, the Republican Party has positioned itself as whatever he is for, they are against just to be against it, even if they used to be for it. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the Obamacare descended from Romneycare as a, as a symbol of that. So I think that, that it's, there is a party that has defined itself as blocking national things, so you can only do it by subterfuge of some, some kind, mm -hmm. by executive order, by military contracts. So um, politics, net. The reason why politicians would gravitate towards infrastructure projects is everybody likes a paving contract in their home district. Right, it's employment. But that one usually employment. pays off, right? But, but it says something about ideology that ideology now trumps pork barrel. So that, that's... <laughs> Whoa, that's a desperate situation. How do we get pork barrel back to yeah. the forefront? <laughs> My congressman brings home the pork. <laughs> And my congressman stands up to those damn liberals. And that's sort of <laughs> how it goes. Space is a story that got going in the 60s and that people got excited about. And then there was sort of a quiet period. And then they're excited about it again. We're, you know, we're seeing it in the movies, in The Martian, and Andy Weir's going to come and talk along now. And space somehow is attractive again. It's a story. And there's a kind of a solar system level of infrastructure that is being thought of. Any second now, people are going to start talking about space colonies again. Uh, Elon Musk already is. Yeah, yeah. and you know, and we have some yeah. uh, various people with large amounts of money who are actually privately heading yeah. into space, Elon Musk being one of them. What's all that about? Is that an infrastructure story or something else? Yes, I think that space has the potential to be the next story. It's inherently interesting. I haven't yet seen the movie The Martian because I've been traveling here since it came out, but I really want to. And, and things like that, I, I gather it has the sort of potential to be capture people's imagination in a different way from Star Wars or Star Trek, which were just video games in space, essentially, or westerns in space, and being about the adventure of, of exploration. So I place a challenge to all of you, everybody here, 99% uh, of you are younger than I am. 99% of you are more in the tech world than I am. Same proportion are better financed than I am. Of finding ways to dramatize the story of space. That, that can be as it was 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago. Can, it could be again, I think. Julian says, the American Society of Civil Engineers has given U.S. physical infrastructure a D minus and believes it will cost $3.6 trillion to get it up to snuff by 2020. Uh, what story, stealth, or emergency will make that happen? Well, uh, tragically, emergency. You know, okay. that you'll have these collapsing bridges. This is one more. I, I'll try to make this the last time I sound this theme. Uh, it would have been so easy and sensible to have a giant bridge and highway program as part of the stimulus package uh, during, during the crash in 2009, but there just was really doctrinaire opposition to making it more than, than a certain certain level. And that was the time when you could get the money practically for free in terms of, of low interest rates. And so that it wasn't done then, but emergencies are actuarially likely to, to uh, draw people's attention. Uh, Mark Chernoff from San Anselmo, he points out, uh, asks, what nation do you see has the best infrastructure for the 21st century? 
Uh, and if U.S. is number one, that would be swell. But who's next? Um, I think that um, the U.S. is clearly the best positioned nation for the next next generation. The U.S. has one main enemy, as you always hear, which is itself. That it is has its its pathological politics, and it's it, if it's not able to address all of our gilded age excesses. But here's the case for the U.S. being uniquely well positioned. It has. We often forget the scale we have. It's the third biggest nation in territory and the third largest in population. Mm -hmm. We have, let's say we have, what, 5 or 6% of the world's population. We, I would argue we may have two or three times that many of the world's most ambitious people because mm -hmm. we're able to absorb them and continue doing them. Our universities, despite our best efforts, are still very strong. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the technological uh, you know, infrastructure that you all have created here is, if anything, more powerful than it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I believe that China has enormous potential, but there are four times as many people there. So, so it's, and I think it's hitting various. And they're running out of young people, which presumably they're, is an issue. Yes. They're running out of young people. They're running out of everything. Uh, my favorite aphorism, when we got uh, early in our time in China, some bureaucrat was saying, all of you Westerners think of everything in China multiplied by 1.4 billion. We think of it divided by <laughs> 1.4 billion. <laughs> Opportunity, food, land, et cetera. And so I think they, they have a much harder road ahead. Globally, there's continents and there's oceans. Um, and sort of to my surprise, oceans, it looked like shipping was going to be you know, something of the past because everything was going to go by air. But shipping is huge. And the oceans are being taken seriously uh, in a lot of ways uh, that they weren't a while ago. And uh, is that your perspective? Is that an infrastructure story? Or is that what? So oceans are another one of America's advantages. They buffer us, except against the new enemy of Mexico. And, they, uh, and they've... <laughs> And also there, there we have a unmatchable military, um, military, military force. I think that the, what I hope oceans could be as a story is both an opportunity for exploration and a crisis to address mm -hmm. the, the ways in which oceans are the frontier of sustainability issues and climate issues. So I, that, that would be also a story I'd be advancing if I were running some tech company and saying, yes, there's, there's excitement here, there's resources, there's adventure, there's colonization, and there's a real challenge to be addressed. How about continents? So Africa is, um, it used to be you go to one country and then to go to another country, yes. you have to go to Europe and, and then come back. And, but yes. you know, they've gotten a little more direct air and things like that. Uh, is Africa becoming a continent? Is Latin America becoming a continent? Is Eurasia, uh, which was connected by Marco Polo and the Silk Road and all that, is it becoming a continent? Stipulating, and I'm talking beyond my knowledge here, well, I'll, I'll talk for a minute or, or two anyway. Uh, I think Latin America is, for all of its obvious fissures, is more like a continent than the others, both because of its shared, they have a shared enemy of the United States. Hmm. And they have, they have sort of similar languages, uh, you know, with, with obvious differences, so, uh, similar heritage, et cetera. Um, China would like Central Asia to be a continent and its continent, mm -hmm. as long as uh, Xinjiang remains within their control and as long as they can sort of build all the infrastructure themselves across the, uh, the, the new Silk Road. Africa seems to me becoming more different mm -hmm. of places Ghana, where we spent our honeymoon, I think is, is on, on the rise, and there are resource economies. Northern Africa, of course, is entirely different. So I think that Africa, as the biggest of these regions, is the one most likely to be variegated, and Latin America 
is the one that has the most common interest. Now, the, of your, you mentioned hard infrastructure, which everybody is what people think of as infrastructure. And you mentioned soft infrastructure. And that's kind of new and interesting. Um, and because of that, there's probably stealthy or uh, other ways to make great things happen there. What, what are some of the opportunities you see in soft infrastructure? I think there's something that we take for granted as part of our soft infrastructure that is an, a constant challenge and is worth maintaining, which is the continued expansion of the opportunity um, idea in America. Here is, is, is what I mean. Uh, again, I've mentioned Peter Hirschberg a couple of times. He showed me a pamphlet that was produced in 1921, I think, at a maker fair in New York City, talking about the varied nations that contributed to the American miracle. We have the crafts of the Czechoslovakian people, or the Czech people, the crafts of the Finnish people, the crafts of the Greek people. And it was a way to sort of buffer the strangeness of absorbing these. We now think, of course, how could you know, Europeans be, be uh, disruptive to bring into the mix? But the steady expansion of making room for people is, I, I think, the most important part of our soft infrastructure. I didn't mention uh, another of the traits of places we've seen that are really working as cities is they take efforts to make themselves open. They're receiving refugees. Mm -hmm. They're having uh, the, the community colleges work in the poorest neighborhoods. And you see, if you if you thought America was actually absorbing immigrants, not having an immigration war, that would fit what you see city by city by city, but not in the, the debates. So you're looking at a lot of small cities dealing with soft and hard infrastructure issues and other issues. And it sounds like you know, you're telling a success story. Many places, they're all doing the same kind of right things. And there must be some that are not. Sure. And uh, how does that work? Yes. The most troubled city we've been to is, is San Bernardino, which is right near where I grew up in Redlands. And what's interesting is they, they compound the economic blows they've absorbed of a composed, uh, closed Air Force base and railroad yard and Interstate 15 moved to Ontario. Uh, they, they combine that with a really uniquely dysfunctional uh, city governance system. So the kind of practical mm -hmm. governance that mm -hmm. we've seen at the city level is uniquely absent in San Bernardino. And the cities that are in trouble, it's more likely to be a political problem than an underlying economic problem. Because economic problems you huh. can adapt to. And one other illustration, Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, which you know, you've all, all heard about, they have, they're really working hard on their downtown, and the problem is the school system there, which the city has no control over. So the parts they have control oh. over are actually on the way up, but the schools are the, the sea anchor on having more people move into the town. About states, I don't hear much about states in your discourse. We heard a lot about feds, a lot about cities. What about states? What's their role? We've seen in some places the states playing a big role. For example, in the South, there are a lot of these governor's schools in South Carolina and Mississippi and a version of them in Georgia where relatively progressive governors said, we're going to have an art school and a math school, the Mississippi School for Math and Science. If any of you have been there, it is a touching, inspiring, and heartbreaking place of, hmm. of what they are, are, are doing. And I won't spend time telling the story. But So we've seen state governments working the bad news, there was a column in the, yesterday's New York Times by Tom Edsel saying the paralysis of national politics is spreading to the state house. Mm -hmm. and you're having the, some of the same polarization based on the 2010 census. And so I think 
there's probably going to be less functionality out of the states and more culture wars for the next couple of years, which increases the pressure on, on localities. So one of the things I noticed about cities, we had Gavin Newsom talk in the series a while back, and he was going on about things going on in Portland, things going on in Seattle, and he's very aware of this kind of comparative race to out-improve the situation between cities. Does that happen between states at all? Uh, yes. Have you heard of uh, Rick Perry, former presidential candidate? His, his whole shtick was move to Texas and avoid these terrible California taxes. And so, uh, yes, and, and there's been a version of that through for 100 plus years of states in a race to the bottom. You know, that, that, <laughs> no, it, it's, it's true. That, that's, the, that's the technical term. And it's uh, so Mississippi, a lot of its industrialization is, is factories leaving the unionized north. And that is just, just the reality of the industries that are moving to, to Mississippi. And so that is bad for Michigan, and it's good for Mississippi. And you can calculate the net human welfare or loss by, by that change. So yes, there is very, very um, vicious. Um, I'll spend another 10 seconds. Sioux Falls in South Dakota is a great city. If you, downtown is wonderful. The way they really got started 30 years ago, you'll notice when you pay your credit card bill, it goes to someplace in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's because South Dakota raced with Delaware, Nevada, and some other place to get rid of all usury laws. So the credit card companies would be headquartered there. And so they used that as the beginning of their economic comeback. They've done more respectable things since then, but that was, how, that was a race to the bottom on usury laws. Uh, <clears throat> is Bitcoin infrastructure, is Stripe infrastructure, is PayPal infrastructure, are these various... Um, currency versions, uh, is that how society also gets itself more powerful? Well, to, to the extent those barriers of previous payment systems where you'd have to use traveler's checks mm -hmm. or we were stuck in Ghana because they wouldn't change our dollars, right. you know, that, that, that sort of thing, that is hard to imagine now. So anything that, that reduces the barriers between people and a good use of their activities, of their, of their potential, is part of the infrastructure. Now, of course, criminals, I presume, also can, can, can it, it speeds their way to some, some extent. But I think, yes, these are part, there's a part of the, the information revolution that makes more people able to participate in the entire world marketplace of ideas, of money, of everything else. It raises old questions about the infrastructure of crime. Um, and how that works, and whether they can make the long-term investments. <laughs> <laughs> but they like seem that. to have a both short-term and long-term view. They're in it for the long-term, but... <laughs> so, uh, one of the questions in here was, uh, what's infrastructure for 10,000 years? What's, um, you know, step outside the usual how long a bridge lasts or a railroad lasts or uh, a you know, college education lasts, and you know, what is infrastructure for the multi-century scale? We are obviously on an, in an area of your unique expertise and my, my uh, relative innocence. I would say, interestingly, of what any of us in this room do, what is likely to have the greatest temporal permanence is something we write on paper. You know, the paper has been an extremely durable medium for things actually lasting. The digital media, we know how often they, they churn. Maybe the cloud means that data will be immortal, not just in a way that can embarrass you, but you know, over, the, over the, the centuries too, maybe not. But it's been, I, you know, when, was, when was paper invented? The Egyptians? 
So we still uh -huh. have some of their, yep, their papyrus, papyrus things. So that's only a couple thousand years. It's not uh -huh. 10,000 years. But I am struck we can find there's some, some emails I wrote back when I got my first computer in the late 1970s that I just can't get anymore because they were on Radio Shack uh, tape cassettes. But things I wrote on, on paper 50 or 60 years ago still exist. And that things that we have on the walls of the Atlantic, we have manuscripts by Thoreau edited by Emerson, and we have, we have Melville <laughs> saying, you know, where's my damn check? <laughs> and we, and, we, and we, we have the contract with Harriet Beecher Stowe for the Battle Hymn of the Republic, for which we paid $3 to publish that in, in the magazine. So that was a wise long-term investment. This is now not what I would domain. have expected right, right on paper. Or, yeah. you know. um, is that kind of cultural continuity, of, you know, being able to refer to something that Harriet Beecher Stowe did, is, is that part of what we're talking about with soft infrastructure for the long term here, is continuity? Continuity of, of good things. Upward continuity. Of, we don't want to have continuity of racism, of tribal suspicion, everything, but continuity of recognizing the, that a lot of the problems, some of the problems we face are unique and new, but a lot of them people were facing 50 years ago and 200 years ago and maybe not 1,000 years ago, but in the, within the last 500 years, people probably faced a lot of the problems we faced of aging, although most people were dead by 35 then. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but, but a lot of the human... We still read Shakespeare all these uh, centuries later because there's something permanent. We read Aeschylus and mm -hmm. we see his plays. So I think continuity with people who have found the best of humanity's reckoning with its limited existence, mm -hmm. with, its, with its desire to be immortal, of rec reconciling those, those two contradictory things, of recognizing, unlike other animals, we're only here temporarily, mm -hmm. but we want to make some kind of mark. That, that's the ongoing the ongoing tension. So in that time frame, I expect that infrastructure looks like a good investment. Yes, <laughs> yes, in that time frame and any other, I would say. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.